Hey, Reset listeners, I've got something super special for you. So it's been a year of us all being stuck inside, and I think it is not a better time to reset, which is why I am so excited to announce a partnership with the Miraval Berkshires, which is a one-of-a-kind spa in Lenox, Massachusetts. Basically, we're launching the Reset Weekend, April 30th to May 2nd. We're creating an amazing weekend where you can go relax, get spa treatments, hike, sit by the pool, get every massage you could ever dream of in a one-of-a-kind, amazing space. I had the honor of going to this space back last summer, and it fueled my soul. And I think once you spend a weekend at Miraval, you're going to love it. So I'd love for you to join me on April 30th to May the 2nd for a Reset Weekend. Details are in the show notes. And Come on through and check out Miraval Berkshires. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Munoz, CEO of the Cultural Communications Agency, D-Flash. Each episode, I bring on a different business leader who's doing game-changing work. And this episode is no different. Uh, I'm so excited uh, to have Dr. Angela Jackson, who's the managing partner of uh, Future Work, the Future of Work Fund at New Profit. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. I'm excited to get ta- started. Uh, take a listen. Hey, Angel, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Uh, it's a good Tuesday, so can't can't complain. Can't complain at all. Um, the way the podcast works, the first question always remains the same, and always fascinated by the answers. And I am excited to see what yours will be. So, Angela, what was your first job? <laughs> so my first job i would say one was working well there's two the first one was i ran i was an entrepreneur i ran a lemonade stand when i was about 10 years old and there was some construction workers who were like working doing some work on a street that i lived on um i grew up outside of chicago and as they were doing construction i had my stand and i was charging like maybe 50 cents for a glass. And so the one of the guys come up, come, comes up and he says, I'll give you $20 for unlimited refills. And I was like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. Um, and it was my first lesson in entrepreneurship. Because uh-huh. actually it was not a lot of money. No, it wasn't. Five hours later, right, of unlimited <laughs> lemonade. So that was like kind of my first job. And then I think the second kind of job where I worked for someone else, I was a telemarketer and I was selling, like making appointments for water filters. And so basically I was the person who would like look through like a directory of numbers, call you and say, hey, would you like to, we have this new great water filter. Would you like to try it? And every time I made an appointment, I got a bonus $5. Just $5? Wow, okay. <laughs> well, I get it. It was, it was good. It was um, good back then. I was, I was 12, so I started oh. working. I started working. Well, okay, you left out the important part there, Angela, because yes. at 12, that could add up very quickly. That's a lot of candy. Yeah, it's um, a lot of candy. Like that, hey, like that's that's pretty cool. Um, but it did learn, it, it did teach you like how to talk to people um, and, and, and getting a reward when you actually did a great job. So like these are things that come in handy throughout our careers. Absolutely. And can I tell you, sales has been a through line of, from what I've always done, right? And so I've always, I started my career early on working in like sales and marketing in the entertainment industry and then went on to technology working for Nokia. And really those communication skills and just being kind of fearless about making an ask 
have really, they just voted really well for me throughout my career. Yeah, so that was a nice segue into my next question. So how did we get from being an awesome telemarketer at age 12, which I think is illegal, but, but neither here nor there, um, to um, where you are today. What's that career journey been like? It's been an, it's been an interesting one with twists and turns. Um, so I went to undergraduate um, to and did my degree in journalism, and I thought I was going to be the next Oprah Winfrey. Um, she was really big in Chicago at that time, and of course, you know, nationally now. And I went to journalism school and I was working one of my early first jobs was literally working as a general assignment reporter and again using those same kind of communication skills, you know, talking to people, you know, understanding their story and then, you know, reporting that back out to viewers. Um, when I did my first job after that, it was in sales and marketing at Sony Pictures. And again, it was this through line of like really understanding people's stories, why they, why they buy products, why they don't buy products. And that led me to working internationally with Nokia, which was fascinating for me being, you know, a girl from the Midwest. I grew up in a, a you know, a town that's 45 minutes outside of Chicago. So the fact that this job with Nokia, you know, I was leading teams in, in Asia and also in Europe, like I, it was a job that I could have never imagined. But if I look back on it now, like with hindsight, I could see like, even from that telemarketing job, being able to tell a story, being under, able to understand people and how to actually tell a compelling story back to them, really led to that job. And then what I learned when I was at Nokia doing marketing and sales internationally was like really how to transact across borders and also across you know, perceived differences where you know many times there's really not differences there. Awesome. So you skipped about, <laughs> all right. So sales is your thing. And so how do we get to this current gig that we're at? Yeah, the current gig stem from once I left Nokia, I founded my first uh, like organization called Global Language Project. And that was interesting for me is because, you know, based on my work, you know, internationally at Nokia, I was like, everyone needs to start learning about other cultures and languages earlier in life because the job I had at Nokia was like so far different than how I had grown up. So as background, I was raised by my grandparents. You know, both of them are, you know, blue collar workers. My grandfather worked at a local uh, Chrysler factory and it really, you know, impacted my you know outlook on life, right? So I didn't know the type of job that I had at Nokia was even possible. Like it was not even right. my possibility. And what I wanted to do with the organization that I found at Global Language Project was like to start with children at their earliest ages, really informing them about the world and, and making sure that they knew that the opportunities were bigger than what's providing like a five block radius around your home. And so exactly that organization, we partnered with school nationwide to create world language and culture programs. And really it was centered on students learning a second and many times a third language starting in when they're in kindergarten. And for me doing that, I was able to raise for that organization, it was a social enterprise, I was able to raise somewhere around you know, $10 million in philanthropic funding. I also started- Just a small amount of money, just a teeny tiny little amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. 
But for me, it was raising the money, also created products that we sold, curriculum that we sold to districts nationwide and internationally too, that brought in revenue. But the thing about um, the raising money from philanthropy and also impact investors, I never raised from someone who looked like me. Like I never sat across from a, a black person, a you know, woman of color that I was asking these funds to. So I found myself explaining why global education- This is necessary, right? It was necessary, right? And so I just thought going on the other side now that I'm in an investor seat, really thought about like how I could take what I've learned as an operator and really apply that to being an investor, one, two, but investing with an equity lens, right? So when I didn't know when I found a global language project that I was doing anything radical by being one, a woman <laughs> and two, a woman of color. Like I didn't know about the capital access gaps, right? For women and women of color. And so once I found out those things, right? We say 10 million, not a small number, but when I look at some of my counterparts who are white men, they were like raising several multiples of that amount, right? And at similar stage organizations. And so really what I wanted to be on the other side was like an advocate for entrepreneurs who are solving problems that they see in their communities and that they know really personally, right? It's, their, it's based on their lived experience and that they could see someone who looks like them on the other side of the table. Awesome. And you know, th th that's, it's, it's so timely because I think right at this moment, there's all these different conversations about the equity gap and why can't, you know, people of color get funded. And a lot of times it's because you, the, all my friends who are trying to raise money are like, they don't get it. And it takes me 10 minutes to explain it's like why this actually makes sense, why there's actually a marketplace for this. And so the more investors, especially women of color who are there on the other side of the table, I think a lot of those conversations will be a lot easier to be had and then more investments will be made successfully uh, and helping these companies grow. Absolutely. Like I, I made an investment in this company called Maven and yeah. well, you know, Maven, right? They're amazing. Of course. So, I have, I'm sitting with my lovely weave right now. <laughs> so. Thanks to the Sean and company, right? But like a lot of investors missed out on that market, right? Because a lot of them are, you know, white men. And so they may not understand what the, the hair market is, right? Or the hair extension market. That's one. Um, two, a lot of investors didn't get where he was looking at a double bottom line. You know, his platform also enables hairstylists to make more income, right? Direct income based on the products that they're buying. And so that's why it was attractive to me as an investor. And I got it immediately, right? Like what he right. was trying to do for women, that one, that there was a market out there. Two, I really got that he's trying to like really empower these stylists and cut out some of these middlemen who are taking a lot of their profits, right? And so I was like, yes, immediately. But there's several people that, I mean, several investors, many investors who passed on that deal who look back now and was like, I missed it. Like I was talking to one the other day and was like, I didn't get it. You know, I'm a bald head guy, didn't even think that this was a thing, but it is a thing and they're proving it out. Well, that's the thing, you know, it's funny because like, there's Mavis and then there's Squire, which everyone kind of, which a lots of, well, loads of investors got. Um, and it was, you know, reinventing um, how to facilitate payments for barbershops. Um, and the two, and the two great guys who founded that, um, and, you know, didn't come from that industry, but, you know, built a really awesome platform and were able to, you know, not only get funded, but get funded. And now they're basically one of the first black unicorns. So it's, it, it takes, more companies coming into this space, more investors of color, sort of like, you know, making the smart bets. 
um, because you know not everyone needs another fitness app like you know solve some of the problems that are happening right now and you can make tons of money like I, I think a lot of times we hear a lot of this as well you know we're doing charity for these like founders of color and like you know they may not have the experience I'm like but you'll happily give a founder who went to Stanford 10 million dollars to blow on a really ridiculous idea that has no use in the real world but like here's someone coming on with a game-changing like you know size inclusivity app and you're like that there's no marketplace for that so it's it's really important at this moment for more of you to exist <laughs> Angela yeah, no, I, I completely agree because it's it's beyond like when I invest in new profit, it's beyond like this is the charitable thing to do or this is the moral thing to do. Like we really see, pro we call them, you know, proximate founders. And you can also think of it as like founder market fit. Like they have some like shared lived experience with the problem that they're solving. We see that they're just bringing unique like insights and solutions to the table, right? To really address a problem that they've seen in their community. And I think that's what a lot of investors don't get. And because of it, right? We see that they are having outsized returns. And so some of these founders are the best kept secret. And what we're hoping to do at New Profit, where you know, we've made a public commitment that 50% of our investments are gonna be in founders of color. Um, because like we believe in impact and we think that the way that some of these founders are, and the way that we're using our criteria that, you know, they are community first, right? They're getting their data from the community and they're solving a social problem um, with a market solution, which is really exciting because then it becomes sustainable. Well, that's the key. So, you know, what for you has been the most sort of eye-opening experience as uh, an investor? The, the biggest one is it's two sides. One is, and I just want to preface this, I, in addition to investing at New Profit, I also am an active angel investor. And a lot of it, when I got into the market, especially, you know, angel investing, I really was very specific that I wanted to like invest in founders of color because I knew about the capital access gap. And so really what I wanted to do, what's been startling to me is that there is this, what I would call, revenue to reputation gap for a lot of founders. So there's a ton of founders of color that you will see out there that, you know, have their MVPs that are, you know, are, you know, post product that actually have sales that are coming in, but that still has not translated to further investments for them. And, you know, there's two entrepreneurs I have in mind, you know, they've been through incubators and accelerators that are supposed to be the gold star, right? It gives them the kind of stamp of approval, like Techstars, for example. Even though they've had those experiences, money hasn't followed. And so for me, I have been really wanting to dig in and say, does it take a new type of investor, right? How do we open up beyond, you know, the thousand plus VCs there are, how do we open up different access to capital? I'm thinking really deeply about, you know, New Profit is a venture philanthropy firm that depending on the entrepreneur, there might be times that an entrepreneur may need grant funding. And we see our grant funding as that friends and family money that some entrepreneurs just don't have. And then there's, you know, this continuum where you need equity investments too. But like, how do we really surround a founder and meet them where they are in terms of their capital needs? Yeah, it's, you know, uh, I have so many people I can send your way, Angela. <laughs> so. I mean, send them because that's the other thing I try to do, even if they're not a fit for my portfolio. Like, I believe strongly in like 
I have a lot of like very close other VC connections in introducing people because we know the warm introduction is real, right? That that's going to be an email that's answered quicker than a cold email that someone's sending. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because like I was saying, like, you know, I sit in this really unusual um, seat whereby like I see lots of startups. I know lots of VCs. Um, I work with brands direct and oftentimes brands are like, find me something interesting that we can use and like, we will find it. Uh, and so we get to see a lot of different things. And I'm always, it's, it's interesting. Like I see people who go through, like I've been to this many accelerator, I've won this many pitch competitions and I'm looking at this idea. I'm like, wow, awesome. Like makes sense to me. Uh, and then I'll see something else. Well, oh, we just got our series A, we raised $25 million. I'm like, I don't even, what, who needs this? And so, and you can guess what yeah. those folks look like. Uh, and, and I think it, it's one, the access gap. It's two, it, it's letting folks understand that there's so much money to be made, especially if you invest in black women. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's part, of, it's part of the reason I'm on the board of Black Women Talk Tech, um, because, you know, from day one, when I was the host, when it was 35 people in a room in Google, um, and they had an overflow of 200 and some odd people who tried to, who wanted to join in for the very first time when they were doing this, to now it being like 5,000 people in five years, that there are amazing people out there doing phenomenal work. And if you make the programs interesting and accessible for them, they will show up and they will show out in ways that will make everybody successful. So, you know. And can I just say, I love them. And, and, and now let me tell you even deeper the part of like the network and the community that they've built. So for example, Lauren Washington, one of the co-founders, mm -hmm. she was on my first board from one of my first organizations, Global Language Project, right? And so this is like 10 years ago. And now like, as I'm doing this work with the future of work at New Profit, like I went to Black Tech, I contacted her and was like, we're putting out this challenge. We're gonna give away $6 million for entrepreneurs who are thinking about a more equitable future of work and who are coming up with solutions. I was like, let's partner. And we partner with Black Women Talk Tech to do some sessions to let people know how they could apply, how they could get this grant funding and also be eligible, right, for follow-on equity funding. Um, but it's really built on those relationships. You know, I, I think, you know, Lauren supported me when my idea was like in its nascent phase when I was starting an organization. And then fast forward now that I'm on the investing side, I'm able to invest in Black Women Talk Tech. I'm also able to invest, you know, in her latest startup funder. I'm in another, you know, angel, um, investor network with Regina. So it's it's really about and how do we like amplify and activate these ecosystems? And, and Laura, that's really why I love what you're doing, right? Because it's not just one lane, like it's going to take us to play in many lanes to really like have the success that we want to have for like the culture and for Black women. Yeah, I mean, look, it's part of the reason why I did 29 Days of Magic, which was actually 32 days of 39 interviews. <laughs> because um, not only as I, I am intellectually curious about meeting more and more and more and more and more amazing Black women, but I also wanted to prove a point that like there is awesomeness in every industry and there are Black women in every one of these industries. And if you take five seconds, you can find them. Uh, and when you listen to their stories, you're like, wait a second, why am I not working with this person? Uh, and so, you know, that was the reason that I, you know, I did 29 Days of Magic. And, you know, folks are asking like, oh, since you just interviewed all those black women, you're not gonna interview any more black women for the rest of the year. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, 
like it will continue um because there's an endless supply of really amazing dope black women like yourself who are part who you know we just want to share this knowledge and you know and we have such a wide plethora of people who listen like yeah this is where you can find great folks yeah um so at a new profit what, what's sort of the focus of uh the fund yeah so it's called the inclusive future fund and really what we're we're focusing on two areas one is what we call an inclusive future of work so really focusing on like who's being left out of the future of work conversations. When we talk about it, you know, the future of work can mean many things to many people, depending on where they're entering the conversation. But we like to think about like the 71 million like US residents who don't have a four year degree and really thinking about who's creating solutions for them to one, identify these jobs that are connected to the future of work, two, to like actually upskill and train for them. And then the third, thinking about what I like to call the social determinants of work, similar to like the social determinants of health, what are the things that need to be true for a person to actually be in a mindset to, to upskill? And just to make that a, a bit more clear, it's like what we've seen with what people call the she session right now. Like mm -hmm. we know women's unpaid labor prevents us from a lot of promotions, taking on extra work, et cetera. And so like now we know, and we have this kind of, I think national awareness that, you know, it's hard to do your job to try to take a class and Zoom school your kids, right? And so we're also looking at innovations in like childcare. We're looking at innovations in transportation, um, also like innovations in like FinTech. So how do you pay for these things? Because a lot of these programs and boot camps are like predicated on you can learn these skills of the future, but you need to pay for them, right? And so that's a barrier to many people who aren't earning a living wage today. It's a trade-off that they need to make. And so we just want to make learning to de-risk that for them, right? And bring down some of the, the barriers that they might have. That's awesome. And so necessary. Oh my goodness, so necessary. Um, it's funny, like you mentioned the X Prize, and I've been recently doing some work with them. See, you can find me everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I would love for you to share about um, what you're doing with the X Prize because I recently like started working with them and had no idea the wide breadth of the amazing work that they can do using these challenges. Um, so it'd be great for you to share um, what challenge that you guys are, are have put up and how people can learn about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the area that I lead is this at New Prop is a $15 million future work global fund. And what we invest in is entrepreneurs and companies who are developing like innovative technology solutions, right, to upskill low income and entry entry-level workers at scale. You know, under that fund is the Future of Work Grand Challenge. And that's the partnership that we did with not only XPRIZE, but with MIT Solves. And so it's a $6 million challenge that's powered by, you know, both MIT and XPRIZE. And it's designed to rapidly reskill 25,000 workers who've been displaced by COVID into living wage jobs in the 24 months. So we're trying to prove out that you can actually cut the time to train for people so they can get into these higher paid, more paid, more lucrative jobs that are tied to the future of work. And with XPRIZE, we have the rapid reskilling challenge. And what we want to do is help workers like undercome like the numerous systemic problems and like societal barriers to learning, to progress and mobility. And while doing that, we want to reduce the time that it takes to train for and land higher wage jobs. And what we're doing there is interesting. You know, 
we had, you know, many entrepreneurs who apply, but we were able to like narrow that down to 10 solutions that we're actually going to validate. So we're not giving the money away just because someone has an idea. We actually want to see what is the impact that they're having on a community and on a job seeker. And so we paired each solution um, with a with job centers in six cities. Um, where they will actually validate and the winners will be selected by how many people are actually able to train and place workers in living wage jobs at the end of the challenge. And then the second one that we're doing with MIT solves is called the reimagining pathways to employment. And it's a six month competition and what we're trying to do is like find and support the most promising solutions to help workers assess their skills to find high growth jobs to match and also get that placement support. And really, you know, we're very clear, like equity has been like front and center with this future of work grand challenge. And it's been embedded in like the core of the process and workers like having real people who are experiencing the problem. Like we had them as judges, they, they helped us select the winners, the 15 solutions that we're piloting. And, and last week we unveiled for the first time, the combined 15 solutions from both challenges that are going into this kind of on the ground validation phase. Awesome. And oh, we're going to put all this in the show notes for folks to find out because it's just absolutely necessary and amazingly wonderful. Like, oh my goodness, this is fantastic. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, your boss, Shot Caller, yeah. making things happen. Talk to me about a time when you were like, I am never going to get through this challenge. And then you did. Yeah, well, there's a, you know, there's been so many, but I will start, you know, just from this kind of funder, like operator perspective, when I was launching Global Language Project and had launched it, you know, a lot of people who haven't been entrepreneurs really don't understand the struggle, right? Because when you're building a company, not only you're trying to reach scale and reach your goals, and you know, for us, it was like getting these programs out to more students, more schools, and scaling the curriculum, but you're also like responsible for your staff, and you're out there also fundraising at the same time. And so there came a time, I think it was probably three years in, where you know, we were doing well. We were in a, you know, probably 20 or 30 schools were using our program and curriculum. We had revenue coming in. Um, but when you're working with districts, like when you get paid, it's kind of up in the air, right? And it's not like you can force someone when you're a smaller organization to pay you soon. Right. And so, right. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there came a time, I know it came a time when I was like, I think we may have to close. Like I can't afford to pay the staff. And for me, it was like, and I told you about my background growing up with my grandparents working in a family. It's been very important to me to pay my staff a living wage, right? More than a living wage, a competitive wage. You know, we were based in New York City. And so, you know what New York wages are. And it just, I can tell you, it became a dark time when I felt like we couldn't be competitive in terms of our salary, our benefits. And then the trade-off was like that we may have to close the organization. And it pushed me as a leader because I was a solo founder, which, you know, hashtag I don't recommend because it's a lot for one person to carry. Um, but it was a time where I just had to be very transparent with my staff about where we were, right? And what the, the problems we were facing. And 
what was a dark time became a very bright time because I saw my team lean in and saw the belief that they had in the organization. So they weren't just doing this for a paycheck. They really believed in like the mission and our North Star. And we were able to weather that storm. And like literally, I think it was December. I was thinking we may have to close. I think it was February. We got confirmation that we were going to get a $2 million investment. And so I would just say like it was darkest days, December, you know, bright and sunny by February. And in between, it was it was a little scary and scary and harrowing, but like we were able to make it through. Oh, I, we have been there. <laughs> uh, and then you make it through, you're like, oh, OK, on to the next thing. <laughs> the next thing but can i tell you entrepreneurship is not for the faint at heart right uh -uh. <laughs> you, you have to be an entrepreneur not a entrepreneur yeah <laughs> i know and that's why i have you know as a uh, now that i'm leading the fund and making investments like i try to work shoulder to shoulder with the the folks the entrepreneurs that we're investing in because i know the journey that they're going through right and so it takes a lot of courage you know every founder that i've worked with they've had that same moment that i've told you about right how are you going to meet payroll <laughs> and then you know something breaks open and so like i have a lot of empathy when it comes to that and we try to think of ourselves as a very like founder friendly firm and really working shoulder to shoulder with them. No, it makes perfect sense. Um, thinking about where you, how far you've come and this place that you're in right now, what do you think you'd tell 25 year old Angela? Wow, I would tell, you know, 25 year old Angela was a risk taker. I just wanna let you know. Um, like after I graduated, I was working that first job I told you for the tv station and i quit and like packed everything in my truck and moved to california moved from illinois to california because i didn't know what i would do with my life i didn't like that first job being a reporter um it was a grind in 12 hours a day for and i was paid 75 dollars a day it wasn't glamorous at all and i went there and i bet on myself like i've always been willing to bet on myself and i would tell my younger self like that's going to be your secret sauce there are a lot of people who thought you know when i quit that first job at the television station you know it was seemingly glamorous because i was on air in illinois you know my grandparents could see me relatives you know friends i went to school with high school with um but i just felt like there was more for me to do and there's been these moments um throughout my life you know even when i was working at Nokia, you know, I was making more money in that private sector than I ever, you know, imagined I would make. And again, leading international teams. But, you know, that was another time where I decided to take a sabbatical and then bet on myself founding my first organization. So when I look back, I would just can tell myself, you know, even on the scariest days that um, betting on myself is a good bet. It's so true. And I think we oftentimes think that like we have to look out for somebody else who is going to save us. And like, actually, you Bet on yourself. Like I always say, bet on the black woman. I will I always, will, always, always, always will. I say the same thing. Even in investors, when we talk about the capital access gap, you know, we're trying to always think about how do we convince someone else to invest in us. I'm like, we're the investors we've been waiting for, right? Like, you don't have to wait to get rich to do an angel investment. You know, you're. $500 to one entrepreneur might be everything to them in that moment. You know, I write larger checks, but it's all relative to where an entrepreneur is. Like we, you know, black and brown people, we can close the capital access gap. 
Well, yeah, and I think it's, you know, knowledge is the key on this one because I think a lot of folks don't realize, okay, all right, if you want to be an angel, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, all of y'all who are working for those great good corporate jobs where you're making a, you know, 250, 300 a year, hello, you can be an angel. There you go. Um, and like, and getting that knowledge of down into the weeds. It's like, we know, I know you love your Louboutin. So, you know, if you bought three pairs of those, that's, you know, 2,500 bucks. 2,500 bucks to a, a new founder could be huge. So, absolutely. absolutely. There's lots of things. So, you know, as you are now, you know, busy doing all this work in the middle, midst of the pandemic, how has COVID affected what you do? COVID has become, you know, when I when I started, I would just say with New Prop and working on the future of work, it was almost three years ago. So this whole idea of the future of work grand challenge and really focusing on, you know, workers who've been most who will be most impacted and have been most impacted by automation, like that's something we already believed in. Um, what I like to tell people is that when COVID hit, like the future of work became the present. You know, a lot of um, sectors that we thought were recession proof, you know, think, you know, the restaurant industry or think, you know, travel and tourism, like they were hit hard. And so people who had worked those jobs, you know, 10 or 15 years instantly like lost their job and they had to begin thinking about what am I going to do next, you know? And they had to do that while, you know, carrying some of their other responsibilities. And so for us and for me, you know, specifically, it just brought even more meaning and urgency to my work. When I think about these entrepreneurs who we are like funding to invest in to do these on the ground pilots, when we talk about training 25,000 workers, those are 25,000 people who are thinking about how they're gonna put food on their table, you know, next week, this week. And so it becomes really personal. Like every time I'd hear the unemployment rate, even you know, last week I was talking, I'm based here in Massachusetts and I was talking to someone at the state level and they said there's 300,000 permanently unemployed people like since the pandemic, 300,000 in one state. And these are people who have like not been engaged in, in employment for like over a year. And so you know that there's a lot of people struggling. And I, I feel inspired that we may have some promising solutions that can help in this moment. And so I feel like we're gonna do good. We're working at this intersection of profit and purpose. And I just feel really good of the work that we're doing. And I feel like there's, there's not anything more important that I could be doing with my time. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so that's how it's affected you as a business standpoint. But what about you as Angela? What are you doing for your self-care? You know, for me, one is what we're doing right now. And I, I love that you sent me this Zoom link and we didn't have to put on like our cameras. Um, I've been going real old school, right? And so doing a lot of conference calls and just giving myself a break. You know, early in the pandemic, I found myself on back-to-back -back Zoom calls and I'd look at, you know, my Fitbit and I've done like 800 steps in a day, you know, whereas, you know, pre-pandemic, I would do at least 10,000, maybe more. And so what I had to do was to give myself like grace and know that, you know, I am doing good by the company by taking care of myself. And so that means that I need to go out and do walking meetings. That means I need to take off the Zoom camera so I can give my eyes a rest. 
And that means that like, I have to really set some intentional boundaries now that I'm working from home. Whereas like I'm logging off by 5.30, six, so I can have dinner with my family and be present with them so that I can like rinse, repeat and be on the next day. And so, you know, a lot of times as women and just me particular, we think we have this like S on our chest and we can do it all. I think what this Mm -hmm. has shown us, right, is that it's not possible and it's not even reasonable, right? To ask this of people. And I think that's why you have so many people who are leaving the workforce because they're throwing up the white flag. They're like, I can't do this. And I think if we could have a more empathetic like work culture, we wouldn't ask that of people. They can't do it in a pandemic. And and a lot of people were just hanging on even before the pandemic, really. It's, and it's so true. I mean, I talk about this all the time with like, you know, black women especially, uh, you know, have a mountain on their back and then end up having two more added to their backs and, and they still have to keep climbing. And I'm like, yeah, no, let's not do that. Like, no. can you, let's remove this strong black woman trope immediately. It's like, no, <laughs> I like sleep. I like rest. I'm taking naps. Like I, I fought, started following nap ministry on Instagram. I'm like, yes, that's important. I'm going to have to log on and look at that one. I also think, you know, there's this um, in communities of color and black women, you know, there's this also this narrative that we have to work twice as hard, twice as hard to get as much. And, and many times that's true, right? I'm not discounting that at all. But like at a certain point, like when do we decide if it takes that? I'm not interested. Like I need to go somewhere else. And I think for our health, our sanity, you know, we need to start asking those questions, you know, early on, you know, in building my career, that was true. But there's this book out there that says, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And so like at some point, when do we start working in a different way? Even though that's true, maybe we start going to other environments where it may not be as true. But also it's bet on yourself. Like what you said before, if you bet on yourself, what you really can do, then you're not actually working twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about when I started our company, we're th- this is our 10 year anniversary. And, you know, I'm working smarter now and not as hard for more money now. See, yeah. Um, and yeah, and you have to go, you have to go through that to realize, wait a minute, I've, I'm at a place where like, I accept this. I will not accept this. I will tolerate this. I will absolutely not tolerate that. Um, and once you get to that, and once you have that clarity around that, and you find that focus, um, it puts you in such a better one mindset because then you're not like thinking you have to do this for everybody else, um, and you just and you're working for you, not to like you know solve everyone everyone else's problems. Yeah, which you, which you can't do. And I just want to congratulate you. 10 years is a big deal. <laughs> you think it's <laughs> life cycle one, but two, like that's the superpower, right? When you're betting on yourself and investing in what you do and what you think that you're really good at, like that's, that's like it, that's everything. That's your superpower. And you can lean in and to your point. You don't have to work twice as hard and it doesn't feel as hard or as heavy. It, it's, it's a journey, but you can get there. And I think, you know, it's, it's why I specifically talk to younger girls in business as they're coming up and being like, look, there was nobody there when I was doing this, but I see no reason why I can't help you. So like you can avoid some of the insane burnout things I had to do uh, to get where I am. 
And that's why this conversation, your podcast is so important. That's why you, when you think about Black Women Talk Tech, like the more that we can share our stories and make our journeys transparent, right? It's like people can make different state mistakes. They can level up on their mistakes. Like, like, let me tell you the pitfalls and be very clear with you about the good, the bad, the ugly, um, so that you can like make different choices if you want to. That's it. You can absolutely do the same mistakes I made, or but you, you make you yeah. can make different mistakes that will probably yes. be less painful. <laughs> um, but like you know, it's very much like you know, all boats rise together, and none of this crabs in the barrel foolishness. Yeah. Um, like just help. Like I see no reason why not to. Like duh. Um, and I, I just love, love, love the work that you're doing. So last question for you. Um, do you have a give and or an ask of the audience? Yeah, I, can I can I like do both? Um, yes, you so, can. Yeah, so my ask of the audience is that I would love them to check out the, the 15 solutions if they Google new profit, um, 15 solutions for the future of work, our site will come up and they can go to newprofit.org. Um, I'd love for them if they see solutions to help spread the word, because these are entrepreneurs who are who want to do good, who are really focused on helping people who are living at the margins. And so the more that we can get the word out about their work and how they're doing it, I think is going to help them rise. It's going to help, you know, actually employ a lot of people. So that's my one ask. My one give is um, a book that I keep referring back to. So, you know, there's not many books that I read twice, three times, but there's this author and I just love everything she's doing in the world, Brittany Cooper. Um, she has this book called Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. I'm like, if you haven't read it, go out and get it yesterday. And the reason why I love it is- it's so good. If, have you read it? Of course. Oh, I well, teach a, I teach a class on how to find your superpower. Like, okay, there you go. <laughs> I mean, whether you're a Black woman or not, read it, because I think the way that she approaches intersectionality and thinking about, like, the impact, how we show up, what we face, you know, as, as women, as women of color, as Black women, how that, you know, lives within the intersection of policy and just world events, I just think it's just a brilliant, brilliant critique on feminism. And so I love her. Um, she's like one of my like inspirations and people that I go to. Awesome. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. I love, love, loved it as well. I follow her on Twitter as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, because she's, she's a must follow on Twitter. Um, yeah, what fantastic. So we're gonna put um, all the details for folks to um, find you on online. I'd say 15, 15 questions as well as find the book. Um, Angela, you're just a wealth of just warmth and goodness and amazing knowledge. And thank you for the good work you're doing out in the world. Um, one day I'll grow up and be like you. <laughs> um, but thank you for everything. And thank you for joining me on the show today. No, wonderful, wonderful. And thank you for having me. This is like having a conversation with a friend and I'm so glad to have you in my network. Likewise. And that, is our show.